2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you're enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marvelled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and your every deed prompted by faith. We pray this so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks, Paul. Uh, at the beginning of semester one, I looked at the first few verses of uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, and I thought, oh, well, I'll just finish off the chapter. You know how sometimes you do something like that and you think, why did I choose that? Because I found the first few verses quite easy. I really struggle with the rest of the chapter. And I think there is a lesson that sometimes we think that preaching can be so easy, and at times it ought to be, but then you find in your preparation that it's not. I found this a very confronting <coughs> section uh, of 2 Thessalonians, and uh, I hope that comes through, and I want to see how it actually impacts us. But let me just ask, begin with these couple of questions. What would encourage you if you were being given a hard time for being a Christian? What would encourage you if you were being persecuted, actually persecuted, for being a follower of the Lord Jesus? Well, in the first part of 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul gives thanks for the faith, the growing faith, the abounding love of these Christians in this place. And this is despite the fact that they are being persecuted and suffering. And he delights in the fact that they are persevering in the face of these difficult things they're facing. And as he continues in the chapter, he wants to encourage them so that they will keep on doing those things, being faithful, being loving and persevering. They're not the sort of things I would have immediately thought of, but in working through the passage, I can see the wisdom of what Paul wrote. Three things, I think, here that you see that Paul writes to encourage them. The first is he encourages them that God is just, that his judgment is right, 
that God can always be relied upon to do what is right. It is bound up with his character. The second thing is that as an outworking of his justice, the fact that he is just, Jesus is coming back to administer God's justice and they will be vindicated. They will be seen then on that day to be in the right. And the third thing that he says is to encourage them that he, Paul, understands this and that he and others are praying for them to persevere and to keep trusting in the Lord Jesus. So there are my three points. The first encouragement that God is just. We see this in verses 5 to the first part of verse 7. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right and as a result you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. Paul reminds them that God is right and true and that he is just. In saying that, he spells it out with three three things. First of all, he says in verse 5, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right and as a result will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. Now, when Paul said all this is evidence, the obvious question is, what is the this that he's referring to? And you see it back there in verse 4. He's talking about the persecutions and trials they're experiencing. He says God's justice, God being just, is being seen in that, which is a very strange thing to think about. And he's echoing the teaching of Jesus that suffering was the path to glory, certainly for Jesus, but also for his followers. You see that in the Gospels. And the fact that God's allowing the Thessalonians to suffer for his name was evidence that he was preparing them for glory and that they would be considered worthy. In John Stott's words, in terms of this text, he says their suffering was itself evidence of the justice of God because it was the first part of the equation, suffering, which would guarantee the second part, glory, that would follow. Rather than growing bitter and angry as a result of their hardship, the Thessalonians are in fact growing. They're growing in faith. They're growing in love. Love for one another in particular. And growing in their ability to endure and persevere. Both their suffering and their response are clear indicators that God has counted them worthy. Not counted in the sense that they have earned their worthiness, but rather in the sense of their being declared worthy as evidenced by their suffering and their godly response to it. The second and third things which Paul used to support this assertion that God is just are found in verses 6 and 7. He, that is God, will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled. In other words, one day God will balance the books. He will reverse the present state of affairs. It's good, old-fashioned vindication. One day you will be seen to be in the right. And this is all bound up with God's character, that God is just. This is so evident in the Bible. Abraham knew it. In the account of Sodom and Gomorrah in his intercession for the righteous in Sodom, he says, won't the judge of all the earth do what is just? And of course the answer is, of course he will. He is himself just. Or David in Psalm 7, talking of God as the righteous judge. You see, followers of Jesus learn to see beyond the limits of this life to the day when final justice will be rendered. 
It takes spiritual discernment to look past the reality of present circumstances of suffering for Christ to what will occur when the Lord Jesus returns. It takes discernment to look past that to the truth that God is just and right despite the injustices we see in the present time. He is not idle even when he is not intervening in the present and any apparent temporary victory of, of God's enemies and ours is just that, temporary. God's justice, his justice will prevail and we will see that clearly on the day that the Lord Jesus returns. That's not to say we can't pray or expect God's protection in this life. It's not to say that God will not or cannot intervene here and now. In the scriptures we have examples of that. However, the reality of living in this fallen world between the now but not yet is that whatever God does in the present with regard to justice will be nothing like what we can expect when Christ returns. And that's certain, unqualified, final, complete outworking of justice to which Paul points the Thessalonians. So he starts encouraging them, reminding that God is just and that there is coming a time when they will be vindicated for their stand for Christ. It may not be in the present, but they need to hold on to that understanding as they face it. His second encouragement is that Jesus is coming back to administer God's justice. So it's linked to the first. He reminds them that the agent of God's justice is the one through whom this justice will be meted out, Jesus himself, the risen Lord, the judge of all the earth. Now, just as with the previous assertion, he then fleshes this out in the verses that follow. First of all, notice what he says about the manner of Christ's return, from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels, in verse 7. And the blazing fire is a powerful image of God coming in judgment. This is not going to happen in a corner somewhere. It will be seen and acknowledged by everyone. One of the fears of Thessalonians was that Christ has already returned or he'll return and we won't know about it. No, that will not be the case. There will be no doubt in anyone's mind, believer or unbeliever, that the Lord, the judge of the whole earth, has returned in glory to administer the justice of God. And you see that when you come to something like Philippians 2 and that hymn of praise to Christ. But not only the manner of Christ's return, but also what the return of Christ will mean. And this we see in verses 8 and 9. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with an everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. He will punish. That is, when Jesus comes back, it will not be some pretense of justice taking place. There will be no plea bargaining, no time off for good behaviour, no delivering of a sentence on one hand and in the next breath suspending it. The Lord Jesus will punish, for punishment follows judgment. And contrary to liberal theology, which denies things like the anger of God against sin, and universalism, which denies that God would send anyone to hell, and contrary to the opinions of others who say that God is not a judge who meets our punishment, look at what Paul says here. It's unequivocal. God is a God who punishes unrepentant sinners. His justice is wrapped up in his ability and willingness to call evil for what it is and then do something about it. Think about it. 
a God that will not allow, will not call out evil what it is, who will turn, who turns a blind eye when the wicked take advantage, and who never does anything about it, is that the God the Bible represents? Of course it isn't, because God is just, and He acts justly, and He will not let evil continue indefinitely. The punishment described here is everlasting. They will be shut out, says Paul, from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. Those who reject Christ will be separated from God's presence and glory. It will be everlasting. It's a picture of hell. And that's a very confronting thing to hear. Some Christians have wanted to take passages like this to mean that hell is not a place in which people dwell forever and which is awful. And they argue that that last judgment, the wicked are simply destroyed, annihilated. And it's not difficult to understand the motivation in wanting to represent it in that way. But of course the important thing in understanding scriptures like this is that you handle the word of God accurately. As Paul instructed Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. It's vitally important we don't engage even so subtly in the practice of twisting the scriptures, of making them say things which they clearly do not, just because we're not comfortable with a particular truth in question. And one of the interesting things is as I thought about 2 Thessalonians 1, I tried to think of when it had been preached on. And I couldn't think of a time. That's one of the reasons I preached on it. Maybe I'll regret it afterwards. But there are some very uncomfortable things here. What is the criteria for this judgment and punishment? He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's language here is interesting. He first talks about those who do not know God, and this is the crucial distinction in terms of this criterion for punishment. And Paul talks here about people obeying the gospel when you might have expected him to talk about believing the gospel. What does it mean to obey the gospel? Well, when the gospel goes out, there's a call to repent. Will you obey? There's a call to put your trust in the Lord Jesus as the risen Saviour. Will you obey that call? I think that's what he's driving at here, that the heart of our response to God, saving work in Christ, is a call for two things, repentance and faith. And these are responses of obedience, obedience to the call that God makes upon those who hear that gospel proclamation. And that response involves first our admission as we did here this morning that we are sinful people, that we need forgiveness and secondly placing our trust in Christ's saving work to make us right with God. When Paul talks here about those whom God will and will not punish, he is referring to those who have obeyed or not obeyed the gospel. It's not enough to explain the gospel. It's not enough to say you've accepted the gospel if your life speaks persistently otherwise. The issue when Christ returns will be whether you have obeyed the gospel, seen in whether you are genuinely converted, whether you have sought repentance, whether you are actually trusting in what Christ did at the cross, whether you are submitting to the Lordship of Christ. These are the indicators of whether or not you know God or merely know about God. And the Lord Jesus said, not all who call me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom. It's a sobering word. 
This passage, as stark as it is, makes it clear unbelief has consequences. Saying no to God is not like saying no to anything else. There are lots of things in life you can say no to which have no real effect upon you, but saying no to God is not like that. I was thinking about this and I thought of a time over 30 years ago when I heard John Chapman preaching an evangelistic message. I was a Christian at the time and Chapo said this. He said, how do you think God will react if you stand before him and tell him, you let your son die and I don't care? Or said Chapo, worse still, you say to him, you let your son die for me and I didn't need him to do this. And it was that point when I heard that, I realised the enormity of saying no to God where he says, here is my gospel of salvation which I offer to you. And that moment has stayed with me so that I can almost word for word repeat what Chapo said. It had such an impact upon me. I think as a Christian at that time, I was just floating along and I didn't realise the enormity of saying no to God. And it made me realise the importance of clearly speaking the gospel to others. You see, unbelief has consequences. Eternal, unending, unrelenting, awful consequences. On the other side, and Paul is here seeking to encourage these Christians, he spells out what Christ's return will mean for them. For God's people, the return of Christ will be a time, he says, in which God will be glorified. And here will be marvelled at by those who believe. It will be a time of great delight. This will be a time when all of God's people, past, present and future, will rejoice and give thanks and enjoy the presence of the Lord forever. And we will share in his glory. When Jesus comes will be glorified in his holy people. At that time, the Lord himself will transform us as 1 Corinthians 15 teaches. We will be changed in a moment into his perfect likeness, sharing in his glory, shining forth, demonstrating his glory, even as we stand in marvel and wonder at him. These are incredible words of assurance for those for whom Christ is truly their Lord. On that day of justice... Those who belong to the Lord Jesus, whose death on the cross dealt with our sins justly, on that day, those whom this world has spurned, rejected, and in some cases persecuted even to death, will be vindicated. And Paul encourages them by this assurance. And this is our assurance too. As I said before, this section I found very confronting. It sets out the alternatives in stark contrast of entering in or being shut out, vindication or damnation, heaven or hell. And those of you in church history for this year, it reminds me of the words of Richard Johnson in that only sermon that we have of his great passion to see people in this early colony, most of whom were convicts hear the gospel and respond to it and it seems to me as I look on this and I hope this is true for you 
It promotes in us an urgency with regard to proclaiming, speaking, sharing the gospel. It should promote in us a drive to prayer, to raise, ask God to raise up more workers for the harvest field. Does your heart ache for the lost? As I thought about this, I realised not only was it confronting, not only was it true, it's personal. It's personal. As I thought about this, I thought about my younger brother, who is not a believer, of his wife, of his two children, of their grandchildren. And I realised this great truth he doesn't know. And it drives me to prayer for him. He lives interstate. And although we keep in regular contact, I don't have those opportunities. And so I pray. I pray for believers to come across his path to share the gospel. I pray that God will have mercy. I pray. You see, this truth is confronting, but if it doesn't grip us, if it doesn't drive us, then, friends, I don't know what will. For there is a world out there and there are so many who are lost. Does your heart ache for them? Do you see the world, the people in it, with Christ's eyes? Does it fill you with compassion for the darkness they're in, for those who stumble thinking that they see, but who are completely and utterly blind to the things of Christ? Only the gospel can shine light into the darkness and bring the people to the light himself. The third encouragement, briefly. Maybe Paul encouraged them that God is just and that the Lord Jesus will return to administer that justice, but he also encouraged him, telling that he, Paul, too, was in this fight. That he and others were praying for them. You see that in verses 11 and 12. Look at his prayer for them. He prays that they will keep on keeping on. He knows it will only occur by the gracious, continuous action of God in their lives. He, so he prays that God will enable his people to demonstrate the reality of their faith in action. They would show that they are worthy of his calling. This godly steadfastness, this perseverance, will lead to not only praise for the Lord Jesus, but will help their people persevere to the end. You see, in verses 11 and 12, we see Paul's example of prayerful encouragement. He tells them that he's praying for them constantly. And he reminds them of important truths they need to hear. What a great ministry these two little verses are. It's something more than simply hang in there, things are going to be okay. No, it's encouragement, if you like, with teeth in it. It's really encouragement that bites. It's substantial, it's meaningful, it's prayerful, and it's focused on the word. It's word-focused encouragement, bringing timeless truths of God to mind and encouraging people in prayers for them and by the awareness of prayers for them. So there you have it. A persecuted people. A people suffering. And here is the apostle so concerned for them that he wants to encourage them. Encourage them to remind them that God is just, that a day is coming when God's agent of justice, the Lord Jesus himself, will come back and bring that perfect justice to bear. And in the meantime, as God works in their lives, there are believers who are praying for them and for 
the needs they have which only God can provide. It's a great encouragement. Encouragement for them, encouragement for us. But it's more than an encouragement to persevere. It's an encouragement to pray. It's an encouragement to gospel the gospel. It's an encouragement to keep looking to the Lord Jesus, the righteous judge, because he is on our side. And what more can we say? Amen.